Welcome to Main Street Politics. My name is Daniel Bonham. Beautiful day here in Salem. We've got a wonderful special guest, Newt Bueller. So starting off, you know, when did you decide to get into politics? What was your first race that you ran? Uh, let's see, uh, 2012 well, was the, the first time I ran for Secretary of State. So. Right. And then you served from 14 to 18? Served 14, 18, representing uh, Bend, or most of Bend, two-thirds of Bend. Yeah. And in that time, obviously not that long ago, so email was a big thing. I mean, you're getting the same amount of contact from back home that I'm getting today. Uh, interestingly, talking to Secretary Clarno uh, about what life was like back when she served. It's hard for me to get used to that Secretary Clarno stuff, but right. I, I'm getting there. Yeah, Speaker yeah, Clarno. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bev, yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, talking to her about, you know, oh, we used to respond to emails within X amount of time, and I was like, I'm just curious how many emails you were actually getting. Yeah, I think the the flow of incoming for lawmakers is accelerating. I know it, it went up the four years I was here, and, and certainly I think the pressure groups, the interest groups are more adept at getting, you know, the inflow of messages, and, and it makes it harder for lawmakers to interpret exactly what that is. Is this truly people who are passionate about the issue or people who are just kind of signing on to the, the mass barrage of email? And who has a network? And, right, exactly. We put out a questionnaire at the end of one of our newsletters. And what normally is a reasonable amount of responses we get back spiked considerably when we hit on a certain topic. Yeah. And what I, we then surmised was, okay, one of those people responding to that question activated their network. Right. And all of a sudden, all those people logged on to our newsletter and started answering the question. So yeah. we had you know, a 500-answer discrepancy on one question. Right, right. Oh, okay, well... <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how that works. And, and sometimes when people ask me, you know, how can I make impact or what are some of the interesting ways I can get through to legislators? And I said, you know, what was effective for me is when someone would write a short handwritten note to me, because then I knew truly it was an authentic reaching out on an issue that someone felt very important important about. And uh, I guess maybe in this very high-tech digital world going back to old techniques of communicating sometimes breaks through in unique ways. Well, and having been on the other end, you know, as part of a trade association that was lobbying Congress, when you get the letter from the trade association, a form letter that says, insert name here, plug your name in here, and send it off, you don't know any better. Yeah. It's what you just were told to do, and that's what you do. Now, being on this end, I can tell you, man, if you get that form letter, find a way to tweak it, find a way to change it, put your own spin on it, put your words in it so I know it's you talking to me and not just put your story into it and yeah, how absolutely. it affects you, you know, on a daily basis or, or how it affects your business, your family. Yeah. yeah. Those are the types of things I, th I believe make a bigger impact than just kind of barraging lawmakers with, with emails. Right. Yeah. So born in Roseburg. Born in Roseburg. Yeah. Youngest of three brothers raised by a couple parents uh, who, uh, you know, stressed to us the uh, importance of, uh, playing by the rules and getting a high-quality education, so I took them seriously and, and went to the best university in the entire state, Oregon State University. Oh, I thought so. you were about to say Linfield College. <laughs> I was like, wow, I went to Linfield, too. <laughs> Didn't know we had that in common. Graduated from Oregon State, played baseball there, then on to medical school. and uh, Hold on, stop, yeah, stop. Yeah. I mean, you can't just flow through, played baseball there. Uh, what was your position? Yeah, uh, I pitched. You know, I, I like to say that I 
watched a lot of Pac-10 baseball because I wasn't a very good pitcher, but I was able to to make the team letter and travel. So that means that, you know, through a, a weekend of three games, I might have pitched two or three batters because I was, a, you know, very specialized relief pitcher. I knew I was supposed to come in and get two or three ground balls, and that was my role for yeah. the, you know, crucial ground balls, but two or three ground balls, and that was it. So it's a great – But the Pac-10. Yeah, it was a great I mean, experience. You know, got to travel a lot through the West Coast, meet a lot of people, uh, watch a great a, a lot of great athletes. You, know, you so. had to have pitched to somebody that uh, ended up – well, I pitched, uh, you know, actually a lot of my teammates I played with, you know, did quite well. Dave Brundage almost made it to the major leagues. Jim Wilson made it to AAA. Uh, Harold Reynolds was with Seattle Mariners. You right. know, a lot of those guys, after they leave Corvallis or Oregon State, they'd come back and play with us in the off season. So, yeah, I pitched and played with a lot of those guys. A wonderful experience. So, so my best friend, Mike Boyer, pitched from, like, 95 to 99. And middle relief – Casey just never quite gave him the chance to start, but uh, his sophomore year he was all conference, which we sometimes just say all American because yeah. it's close <laughs> enough. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> if you're all conference in the Pac-12, you're you're close enough. Uh, we'll just leave the story brief, but he did throw one pitch that was hit so far that I, I'm not sure that it's not still in the air. Yeah, I, I might have had a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> too too many of those. That's why I was a rarely used middle inning relief pitcher. <laughs> but to Mike's credit, the gentleman did end up in the major leagues. Yeah. I was there at the game. His dad had come pick me up from Linfield. We drove down together to watch the game. And uh, again, what a fun experience. Yeah. And, and he really was a Maddox-style pitcher, Greg mm, Maddox-style. Yeah. You know, he hit his spots. He didn't overwhelm right. you with a super fast fastball, but he, he threw 87 miles an hour yeah. and, and just had some wicked movement on some of his pitches. So fun times. Yeah, it was a good experience for me. I, I learned a lot when you come from high school. You know, you're the star in high school, right? Or right. you wouldn't even be able to, you know, play in the Pac-10. And then when I got to Oregon State, I was no longer the star. I was just uh, barely hanging on. And that's a good, you know, it's a good experience to uh, become part of a team find your role, even if it's a niche role, and, and do everything possible to do the very best at that role. You and know? I would imagine the connection was strong enough to where now when they're winning national championships, you feel a part of that. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, and uh, Coach Casey's been really good with me, of you know, bringing me back, occasionally talking to the team, throwing out the first pitch during the, the campaign and those types of things. So, yeah, it's, it's a great relationship uh, for me with Oregon State Baseball. And you were studying. You were on the path to be – what you are, yeah. an orthopedic surgeon. Right. But this Rhodes Scholar, I'm not sure I fully understand yeah. what it means to be a Rhodes Scholar. I know that there was a Mr. Rhodes out at Oxford, yeah. and then he, you know, developed this with English-speaking nations, this scholarship that would bring folks from around the world. Yeah. And you, the first ever from OSU? Uh, first ever from OSU, yeah. But you don't go to study then your field, what do you study? So you, you know, so the the Rhodes was started by a guy named Cecil Rhodes, who is British native who grew up in South Africa. Uh, he started the De Beers uh, Diamond Company, so you can imagine there's a, a little bit of wealth there. Well played, and he had yeah, well played. Uh, no heirs, so he his whole fortune went to the Rhodes Trust, and the main focus of the trust is providing these scholarships worldwide. I think there's about 
uh, 90 now, and uh, there are scholarships only to Oxford from the previous British colonies, which includes the United States. So there's 32 every year from the United States. And so you can go there. As long as you get the scholarship and get accepted into Oxford, you can study uh, whatever major you want. So I chose to get a master's in politics and in economics. Yeah, which, gosh, I, I would love to have you back in this building to have more understanding represented in the legislature of economics. I miss you in the caucus. I miss it's a you. little bit of a blind spot <laughs> Not in the building, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, at least watching from the outside this session, it looks like that there is a, a general ignorance of basic economic policy and facts and experience, yeah. which is disappointing. Shifting gears just slightly, but on that same track, when I first was appointed, you know, coming into the building, I was a series of appointments, right? It started with John Huffman, then Mark Johnson, then Jody Hack, and then Cliff yeah, Benz yeah. moved over to the Senate, and then Dallas Hurd moved over to the So we had five rookies come in in the last short session in interim, and then in this election cycle with you then running for governor and Andy and Sal and Gene and uh, Bill retiring, we have nine new members yeah. in our caucus. One of the things Mike McLean early on said, you know, we're very inexperienced and uh, youthful and... Uh, but enthusiastic. Yes, energetic, enthusiastic, <laughs> optimistic. You know, some of the things we don't know any, but, you know, we might not be as jaded. How's the as optimism the... level these oh, days? Oh, my gosh. It, it's, i got to be honest with you. It, it is, it's a challenge to stay optimistic yeah. in a super minority. But back to my question. When you came into this process, you had a bunch of seasoned veterans, but you were new to the legislative process, where were you looking for leadership? Where were you looking to, to capture some of that uh, institutional knowledge before it left? Yeah, and I was very fortunate that I think I was the only, no, I think uh, Hayden and I were the only two newbies in. So there was a lot of institutional, long-term institutional memory that I called upon. And how I really focused is I would find a few of the, gray hair members that had subject matter expertise. Mm -hmm. So on certain issues, I knew I was going to go to Cliff Bentz with regards to tax policy and revenue issues uh, in with regards to some of the cap and trade legislation and with regards to criminal justice. Actually, I'd go to Andy Olson and actually Jeff Barker also, right. who is a, a Democrat, but I always had a great relationship with Jeff and Jeff would kind of explain some of these, you know, more intricate, longstanding criminal justice issues. So I'd selectively pick out uh, people like that. And then I, I hired as my chief of staff a, a longtime person from the building, Jordan Conger, who, who yeah. knew kind of the process, right? So as you know, Daniel, coming into this, the process, it takes, you know, one session, maybe two to really understand how a bill becomes a law, so yeah. to speak, yeah, right? So having someone who's intimately knows that process was very, very important. So I, I had staffers who knew the process, and then I, I called upon the longstanding members for subject matter expertise. Now, the other thing, because you mentioned Jordan Conger, and I, it's been a common theme on the people that we've had on the show so far, is staff relationships. Yeah. But a big one, and the one that really impressed me in watching your campaign, yeah. was the support you have outside the building. Uh, yeah. Watching your family support. Tell us a little bit about that. Was Patty always interested in this? Were the kids always supportive? Was it something that evolved over time? Yeah. Uh, my wife has been a saint <laughs> in regards to this political process in terms of uh, being all in. You know, we've always seen this as a as a team effort. And my advice to anyone who's thinking about entering politics in this 24-7 
news cycle, uh, better have a supportive spouse on board because you know, you're going to torture each other if you don't. So we always saw this endeavor, like much of what we do in our life, as a team effort. So during the campaign and even during my time in the legislature, Patty and I really, really locked arms and you know, divided the work and got after it. Was there a day you knew you were going to do this? I mean, were, were there conversations early on in marriage, early on in life, where you said, you know, hey, someday yeah. I, I want to give up this beautiful life we've created, financial security, and throw the dice yeah. and see where we land in a political world? It was in stages. So part of the agreement when you get the Rhodes Scholarship is that you get a world-class education for free, with the expectation at some point in your life you're going to serve the public good, you're going to serve others. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to go into politics or government, but you're going to give of yourself in, in a public way. And I felt very strongly that I should honor that commitment, and I got to the point in my career in my life that I started looking around and trying to find where I thought I could really make the biggest impact, and also where there's the biggest need, and I quickly turned my attention to our political system and our failing state government that needed the most help, that there really wasn't the innovation, there wasn't, in my opinion, people really driving change that needed to happen. So in the campaign cycle, many things happen. Different topics come up. Uh, different challenges arise. I, I've talked to plenty of my colleagues about it, and they say, you know, 100 things are going to come up if you can predict 10 of them. Right. I think that's a Mike McLean comment. You know, then you're doing tremendous. In your campaign cycle, you know, we watch ebbs and flows of, of what you had to focus on or what you chose to focus on. When you started talking, though, about ideas to solve homelessness and foster care, like you really elevated the level of discussion for those topics, and it was my favorite part of the campaign because we were finally talking about ideas and policies that could make lives better. Yeah. What was the genesis of that? Yeah, so that, that was a purposeful part of the strategy of the campaign for two reasons. One is uh, I felt for a long time that Oregon had become mired in mediocrity. The status quo was acceptable and that needed to change. We need to have aspirational goals, big audacious goals that we could really capture people's imagination like we used to in, in Oregon right. uh, when we were known for policy innovation. And on the other side, my big criticism of a lot of Republican candidates that they are really good and passionate at saying what's wrong and saying no, being the party of no, so to right. speak. Yeah. Not very good at coming uh, up with innovative policy ideas from the center right. There are great ideas, you know, for conservative ideas to solve a lot of these problems. Foster care, homelessness, our budget crisis, the PERS problem, our education, our health care system, all the things that we came up with, our policy planks. And so that is a twofold goal. And as you see with the Oregonian article from this weekend, uh, front page, you know, that put uh, the governor's team on their heels. Yeah. And it should have, because uh, the lack of leadership with regards to big policy ideas coming from Governor Brown is, is really disappointing in so many ways. And I've seen it over the years just in my life, the sense of it's good enough. And to see it, that sentiment kind of take hold yeah. in this building and in this process is so frustrating to me. I'm with you. Like I, I believe there is a better way to do it. And there's a way that can help all Oregonians rise. And right now we're just mired in this yeah. uh, good enough stance. Yeah. And I don't, quite frankly, I don't understand it. Anyone looking outside, engage with their neighbors and engage back home in their districts will see that things need to change. Things need to get better. Yeah, I mean, 
I'd correct myself saying we're mired in mediocrity. Actually, we're mired in the in the basement with regards to how this state functions in terms of our education system, in terms of taking care of the mentally ill, foster care. Uh, it, it's really an embarrassment uh, where we find ourselves in Oregon right now. So especially, I would imagine, knowing that you were going to run for governor, that there were bills put forward, and, and this has been a surprise to me in this process, that there are bills put forward that are actually designed to just position us as Republicans of having taken a vote, especially right now in the supermajority. We continue to get uh, topics brought forward, not fully vetted, uh, without our input, and the good when perfection could be attainable is now acceptable because the good comes at a crossroads of decent policy with a political twist that now I can say in the next campaign how you voted on this. And that, for me, is the most frustrating right now, going through this process and trying to explain that to people back home. People don't understand. Why would they do that? Like, that's the question I get all the time. Like, why would they do that to you? And my answer is they just want absolute control. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see those bills coming. You know, after, During my first session, I was as surprised as you that they would put up a bill just simply for political objectives to use in a hit ad in your campaign. But that's what goes on here all the time. And uh, but to be fair, sometimes no matter how you vote, they'll twist it, you know, in the campaign ads, for example, you know, they in my gubernatorial race, they said, oh, Bueller voted against the K through 12 budget. Yeah, I voted against the K through 12 budget because I thought it was too low, not not high enough. And, but of course, that doesn't come through in that. So. Yeah, we just had the student success package come through, yeah. uh, which came with an increase of $2.8 billion in taxes. Now, $800 million, that goes back in, in other tax uh, abatement. But the challenge is, do we need a new tax or do we just need to focus on education funding? That was my argument. On the House floor, I said, bring the package right now that funds education at $10.4 billion, and I'll vote yes for that. Now, we'll have a budgetary challenge then right. to see what other services remain and can remain and be paid for. But to incorporate a tax that we just voted down two years ago, yeah. we just voted this down. We said we don't want a gross receipts tax. At a time of record revenue, despite that, up 10%. uh, I'm sure uh, anyone listening would be very satisfied if their uh, income was up 10% or their business revenue was up 10%. You know, that's hard to do. And uh, Oregon now state budget seen that almost double-digit or double-digit increases three straight biennia. Yeah. And if you account for population growth and inflation, you still can't get, you know, that 20 years ago, we're, we're still spending way more money today than we were 20 years ago. And my question back to people in my district is, do you feel like you're getting more, 26% more service today than you were 20 years ago? Yeah. Fourth, fourth highest state government spending in the nation. Yeah. I don't see the fourth best government services in the nation. I can tell you that. Yeah. We're not taking care of foster kids very well, or we have infrastructure problem. Our K through 12 education system is one of the worst in the nation. Where's all that money going? So, for me, like I look at the Republican Party today, yeah. and and the reason why I was so excited about your campaign when you started to talk about solutions is that's where I think we need to go. We need to actually go back and communicate to people that we have a plan, and we're not just the party of no. Yeah. And can we today? knowing that you just went statewide and you met with all these people and you yeah. met with different factions and different ideologies within our party, do we have the capacity today to rally around 
a plan to move Oregon forward as a Republican plan? Yeah, I, I'm not sure as a Republican plan. It just needs to be good ideas, you know, okay. good ideas for all Oregonians. Uh, I think the Republican Party, there, there's so many different factions right now, you know, kind of ranging from the, the evangelical faction, the libertarian faction, kind of the, the business Main Street faction, mm. and now even a populist faction. And to get them all to agree on a policy is hard. I think there are some that are a lot easier to find that agreement, like fiscally responsible is one. Encouraging expansion and growing of our economy is another. Uh, but to really cut to the chase here, you know, to win statewide, you know, it's only 26% registered Republicans these days. Right. You have to get a lot more than Republican support to get to 51%. It's it's not higher math. <laughs> yeah. So it has to be a plan that not only Republicans can embrace, but also a good number of independents and, and probably also some moderate Democrats. Yeah, this is just an audio program, so we can't draw the chart for people. Yeah. But if you look at the trend of registered Republicans on a downward trend, the trend of Democrats is on the same trend. That's right. And the only trend growing is the non-affiliated people, the people that don't want to be affiliated with either party. That's right. You know, those are the folks that you really have to speak to increasingly to get elected statewide. Now, of course, on specific legislative districts, you know, maybe not so much, uh, but statewide or a swing districts, yeah, you have to speak to those independent voters. Yeah. So you uh, represented a swing district. Uh, Actually, a, yeah, a swing district that was 12 percent Democratic advantage registration. Yeah. Right. With the history of more conservative voting record. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think the the Democrats historically in my district now, Sherry Hilt's district, District 54, they were more, what I'd say, moderate Democrats in, in a lot of independents, a, a very independent-heavy district. Right. And I that is one of the challenges, too. Like when I go home and I talk about Democrats, I have to preface, you know, Portland liberal progressives because the Democrats that live out in my district are more fiscally conservative. Yeah. They really are. They're, they're people that believe you got to live within your budget. They want government to be responsible. They don't want it to be wasteful. They yeah. do believe in some of the social programs. But again, I think even the Republicans that live out in my district are more moderate socially yeah. and say, yeah, there are programs that we need to fund. Yeah. And I always look to Reagan. You know, I, I thought Ronald Reagan, despite his modern perception of how conservative he was, he believed in government programs. Right. He believed that these things had value and that we needed to support them and fund them and stabilize them so that they could give people that hand up. Right. And upward mobility was so important to him. And I think that's really, for people east of the mountains, in the districts that I've visited, and I went out and knocked doors for other campaigns and met with folks, that's what they're looking for, right? I, I totally agree. I, the, one of the key roles of our state government is providing everyone with excellent opportunity. Right. Education, health care, infrastructure, those are the things that people need to really succeed and shouldn't be based on anyone's race, gender, class, economic status. Everyone should have that equal footing to try to make themselves better. So what were the challenges that you saw representing that bend area? Well, certainly uh, what you referenced, you know, being positioned on votes in the legislature, which were just purely political and uh, to a large degree targeted at me and a few other swing 
representatives because you knew in the next election that they were going to use those votes against you and you saw those coming right away. And then to a certain extent also being clear that, you know, I was representing my district and wasn't representing a, a party or a particular political viewpoint. And I think some people, uh, you know, in the, the right wing of the Republican Party thought for whatever reason that I should be representing them. No, I represent the people who elected me right. to my office. Absolutely. So. And that district is so unique because it is a donut hole with a donut around it. The district that now Jack Zika represents, Gene Wisnett before him, completely encircles that district. As we talk about coming up into the 2020 election, which will then lead to, with the 2020 census in hand, redistricting in 2021, I look at that district and I say, wow, if there was ever a time to use the word gerrymandering, It is looking at that district in Bend. Yeah. Well, Dan, you, you, you and I share a passion around this topic, right? <laughs> We've talked about it many times, the, the process, how we draw these political boundaries in, in Oregon is highly partisan. And to be fair, both parties, uh, by incumbent politicians, to make their districts safer and safer and safer. And then a, a few of the newbies get put into swing seats that are highly competitive or uh, very difficult to win the next time around. And my seat was one of those gerrymandered seats that the Democrats were able to negotiate this donut hole district, as you talk about, because they figured they could win that seat routinely by putting essentially all the Democrats or the majority of the Democrats in Bend into a very neatly compact district. Yeah. Hasn't worked out so well for them. You know, it's getting harder and harder each election cycle. But as I look at Oregon, especially after this last election cycle, a lot of people said, well, we're a deep blue state. We just need to recognize we're a deep blue state. I'll tell you, I meet enough people and I'm around the state enough. I just still feel like we're a purple state. And so when I look federally and say we have seven federal delegates and only one of them even looks remotely like me, I, I don't understand how we drew lines that would allow... Eastern Oregon to have such little representation and, and even, you know, suburban, more moderate people to have such little representation. I'm fascinated by this whole process. Yeah. Well, so, so am I, and it needs to stop. The current process needs to stop. So I'm working with a number of groups, including the League of Women Voters and groups from both the left and the right to come up with independent redistricting, meaning an independent commission of citizens, yeah. not politicians. Right. I, strongly believe that politicians shouldn't be selecting their voters, that the independent commission of citizens will draw these these lines and so that we have more competitive districts and uh, hopefully people who are elected in those districts who more represent the people that they're serving. Yeah, represent and resemble. And resemble, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it would be nice. Yeah. So one of the questions I'd love to ask people, what is something listeners would be surprised to know about you? Oh, wow. Well, uh, people may not be surprised, but I think it gains understanding to who I am as a person is uh, I always want to try to make things better. I'm a problem solver. So when I walk around and see a problem, it's like it it bugs me. It kind of irritates me. It's like, you know, that shouldn't be done that way. You know, we we should be able to fix that. So I'm kind of a fixer. I like solving problems, and I've done that no matter what career I've been in. You know, when I started doing knee replacement surgery, I saw that the old mechanical instruments for doing the knee replacement were kind of clunky and outdated. So I helped invent computer-assisted instruments. And then when I got in my medical practice, it 
seemed like people wanted a one-stop shop for all their kind of musculoskeletal care and needs and not to travel all over town to get this appointment and this brace and see this provider. So we consolidate that into one building uh, where people could have one-stop care for all their musculoskeletal needs. And then, you know, I started looking around at what I'm going to do next in my career. I saw the, the biggest problem being our state government. So, you know, I ran for political office and maybe I didn't do such a great job, but I tried to fix some things here too. So I always try and come up with an oddball answer of my own. But in your case, I'll tell you, what surprised me the most was despite the fact that you were running for statewide office and and knowing what your professional, all the energy that you put into this, you consistently made time. And I want to emphasize made time because I know your schedule had tons of demands on you. You made time to make sure that your family went on hikes, spent time together, went to ball games, got away. And for me, that was probably the most impressive. I heard early on my time here in the legislature, we had Senator Courtney come introduce us newbies to the process. And his comment was, all of you got here with somebody else. You came with a team. People helped you get elected. Your family was there for you. You had financial supporters. But some of you will leave here alone. And you all take the photos with your family dog and say your family people, and yet you're going to take 80 hours of your week and dedicate it to this job, and you're going to neglect that very family that you so love. Again, it, it's been constantly beat into me, Senator Hansel, Senator Johnson, Greg Beretta, all the folks that I looked to early on when I first entered this building emphasize that. And so to watch you, and again, you know, I'm friends with your family members on Facebook as well. So I I see that it's not just you posting a photo looking like you're spending time together, but you guys are actually doing it. Yeah. Well, it helps when you like each other, right? (laughs) 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 It's not such a chore, right? Wonderful benefit. Uh, But but to be fair, also, it it takes, you know, dedicated effort in carving out that dedicated time. So during the campaign, you know, I tried to reserve Sunday afternoon and evening, but, you know, mostly was family time as, as long as deep into the campaign as possible. And yeah. I, it's important to to keep yourself rooted, you know. In these positions, people want to make you feel very important. And being around your your family, sometimes it's, it's good not only to be rooted, but to be brought back to ground, so to speak. So it, there's lots of advantages to spending time with your, your loved ones. So I have to say, you know, for most of us, I do feel like it's easy to just say oh, we're, we're just people. I was sitting on the couch reading a newspaper article when I saw my predecessor move on. Yeah. And I was running a small business had a family, but, you know, I, I, I'm as everyday Oregonian as the next person. Uh, I will say this, Newt, you're not. You, you're <laughs> exceptional. <laughs> yeah. And it was such a I, privilege. I don't feel that way, especially with a, a loss in my pocket. So. I don't, uh, you know, regardless, you were the best <laughs> among so, us, and so. I was so privileged to just yeah. have you at the top of the ticket. It was, it was so. I enjoyed going out and knocking doors for you. You know, I, I still believe the best is yet to come. Well, well likewise, uh, I can't say enough about the new class, you included, that came in. I mean, uh, there was great talent, the enthusiasm, the insights, the intelligence, the the world experience, the life experience that you and others have brought in. It gladdens my heart, and I just hope that you all don't get frustrated with this legislative session, that you have to sometimes play a, a long game and chip away at it. Uh, but, uh, I think you all have really made your mark in very positive ways that you can build upon in the future. I had some wise counsel the other night. I'm roommates with Mike McLean. Mm-hmm. I live in his house. 
he said, now, Jack Zika lives with us as well, representative from the Redmond yeah. area, and he, he said, now, gentlemen, don't make any decisions about your future in session, period. Don't do it. Wait till session's over. <laughs> Take that, a moment to decompress. Yeah, that's wise counsel right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, it really is, in all seriousness. And I always say, also, don't make any decisions after very emotional experiences. You know, if you get fired from your job or get a divorce or lose an election, you know, let the dust settle for a while because it's a very easy, you know, like making a decision during the session about your future. It's kind of an emotional time. Let the dust settle before making any, any big decisions like that. Yeah. Well, I do like our team. You mentioned the, the rookies, very hardworking freshman class, at least in our caucus, you know, the, the people I interact with the most, so I can speak to that. But I will say, I miss those who have left. We need to do like an alumni event. Yeah, I don't I love know, that. bowling or softball, something. Let's get together. <laughs> Let's fun. have a barbecue. Yep. Yeah, spend some time. Uh, I'm on. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so All much right. for taking the time. And thank you, the listeners, for coming back by again. Main Street Politics. Remember, if you need to get a hold of us here in the office, 503-986-1459. Or our district office is 541-719-8745.